Good morning to each of you. Thank you, Ricky, for the verses you read in Hebrews 13. And then I was also thinking of Hebrews 12, that we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. I think this is referring to those who have gone before, and somehow they are aware, engaged in our race. And so we are encouraged in light of those around and in light of those who have gone before to run our race well. And so we lived in 2023, and I was thinking about it this morning that Anabaptism and Mennonites began in 1525, which is almost 500 years. And a lot has happened since then, and none of us remember 1525 unless we read about it. And there are so many things to be aware of and to consider. And I want to start this morning with looking at a few verses. The comments I make this morning will not be taken from the Scripture. They are historical comments, but there are a lot of things that happened in 1523, 1524, 1525, and so on, that people made decisions based on their understanding of Scripture. So I have the verse here on the board taken from 1 Corinthians 3. This was the verse that Mennon Simons had on everything he wrote. He had this verse at the beginning that no other foundation can any man lay than Jesus Christ, that he is the foundation of the church. And that verse in 1 Corinthians 3 is in the context of Paul talking about how the church functions and that many people participate in the building of the church. So Wendy drew all of these stones here to represent people, and then there's Jesus Christ. So Paul was saying that there are all these builders. All of us are builders. We are lively stones, I think King James said, which means living stones. And we are builders, and Paul says, take heed how you build, that your building will withstand, the materials you use will withstand the test of time. And part of the 
materials we use is our beliefs. Um, it's also our methods. But beliefs and methods that we use to build on Jesus Christ, and will they stand the test of time? And we're going to consider uh, some of these uh, beliefs and methods this morning from back there, 1525, <clears throat> and follow. So here's another verse. Uh, in Mark 16, 15 and 16, uh, these are Jesus' words to the disciples, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, and he who does not believe will be condemned. And <clears throat> maybe some people would say that back then, uh, these people who interpreted these verses this way, Anabaptists, that they were being too technical or maybe the verses don't mean what they said, what they thought they meant. Well, they said these verses give the process by which a person can be baptized. What, what is the criteria? And they said these verses teach that you, you go and you preach. And then those who believe, they are the ones who can be baptized, as opposed to the, the practice of the day, which was that everyone born in a geographical area was baptized as an infant and now was saved and belonged to the church. So Anabaptist says, that is not what the Bible teaches because these, these verses say they have a process. And that's not what, that's not what Roman Catholics are doing. Uh, another, another place in Matthew 18, um, so, so one of the practices in uh, many, for many years prior to 1525, if if the church thought someone was a heretic, you killed them. That's how you got rid of heretics. Um, okay, if I can explain this. Okay, if you have a church that's composed of everybody in society because you live there, how do you exclude someone from the church who's doing something that the church says you can't do? How do you exclude a person from the church? Okay, the answer to that was you, you, you have to send them out of society. You would have to send them uh, to an unknown region, maybe Moon, Mars, Jupiter, or to some 
island far away, or maybe in a solution, be killed. That's how you could get rid of people. Uh, so Anabaptists came along with this novel idea that the church ought to be composed of people who believed as an adult, and it's only composed of those people and not everybody in society. And so if you need to exclude someone from the church, you, you would discipline them. First of all, disciple them, and if they didn't respond positively, you could exclude them without killing them. And uh, that, that came to be called excommunication. I might come back to that. Um, so then, also in Matthew, in Matthew 28, uh, these verses from 15 to 20 talk about uh, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. And if he hears, uh, you've gained him. If not, take someone else. And eventually, uh, you could exclude him. So that, that was where they got this idea. And then at the end of Matthew 28, uh, what we call, refer to, I suppose, as the Great Commission, uh, Jesus said, go, go and preach the gospel, and, and he who believes uh, be baptized, and um, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all things. And so, um, this evening in our meeting, I am going to explain those verses a little more in relation to each of you, each of us who have responsibility in the church, what is the goal of the church, the mission of the church, and how does my task fit into that? How can, how can I do what my responsibility calls for in a way that um, promotes and achieves these verses? So I'm sorry, I'm not going to explain that this morning. So these are the kind of verses that, that everyone basically was struggling with in 1525, and the Anabaptist answer to them was different than other people. And that is why they were persecuted. So coming to our notes here, uh, the notes are on the back of the bulletin, uh, some questions. Um, so the first, the first is, what, what should qualify a person to belong to the Church of Christ? And I've kind of answered that already in those verses that I've talked about. Should being, being born in a certain geographical area qualify you? Or should a person have voluntarily surrendered to Jesus as Savior and Lord? Which of these does the Bible promote, talk about, explain? That's one question. And another one is, uh, is the church 
And this this question is a little maybe a little more uh, complex. Is a church an association of individuals who meet for worship and nurture? Or is it also a body of believers who encourage, admonish, and disciple one another? So maybe I should say, um, sometimes I struggle with that question, and I think, okay, why can't we just have Sunday morning worship and focus on worship I'm not even sure if I should say what all I think that is very, very radical because, because, because. Sometimes I think in my wild moments that uh, we should primarily focus on worship Sunday morning. And, and sermons are fine, but let's focus on worship. And then let's, let's have communion every Sunday morning because that's worship too. And... Um, Sometimes I can go down that line. But then there's this other part of church life, and that is discipling people, making disciples, and helping people grow. And so the question is, is the church primarily uh, a place where, where an association of individuals, maybe not even committed to each other, where they worship or is it also a place where we admonish and encourage? And so here's a statement I'll make. If the only or primary purpose of the church is to provide a place to worship God with others, then you don't have to be very concerned about how people live their life or grow or, or where they are spiritually. Uh, that's not really our primary focus, so our primary focus might be just worship God. Everyone can do that uh, as they wish or can, and we're not too concerned about uh, how people live. These are questions that maybe you think about. I think about these things. So all... I'm still on the introduction. All Anabaptist beliefs uh, intersect or they come together in the way Anabaptist Mennonites do church. Uh, in, in the Anabaptist Mennonite view of church, uh, we see an understanding of um, salvation, what it means to be saved, be a Christian, be a follower of Christ as Savior and Lord. Um, we see um, their understanding of baptism is for believers. Uh, the relation of sinners to society. And uh, we might not like how Anabaptist Mennonites in the 16th century viewed this, 
but their view of saints and sinners was that, uh, I'm sorry, believers are saints and sinners are lost, and uh, this is two different categories of people, and um, maybe they tended, they tended to have an us and them attitude, maybe. Although, although they were extremely mission-minded and won many, many people uh, in their communities to their understanding of Christianity. They were way more mission-minded than we are. I'm sorry, but they were. And very, very active every day in their work with people they met, worked with, family members. But in their understanding of church, we see their commitment to having shared values and shared space. Of course, they didn't have cars, trains, airplanes, and didn't go anywhere. They probably never got more than five miles from home throughout their whole life. And they didn't have phones and internet, and they didn't know anything they didn't know. Yeah, that wasn't a very profound statement, but we know a lot of things we don't really know. We, re we just read stuff. So their, their lives were very different, and their, their understanding of church was um, different than ours, I think. So the question then uh, on your handout is what, what qualifies a person for church membership to belong to this community of faith? So in 1525, uh, you had uh, Catholics, Roman Catholics uh, in Europe primarily, and <clears throat> I, w I won't discuss it, uh, Orthodox. Greek Orthodox, but uh, Roman Catholics primarily, and then you had uh, Lutherans, Luther's followers, and Reformed, who were followers of Zwingli and uh, Bucer, uh, Capito, uh, Calvin later, a little later. And all of those people, all of them, believed that infant baptism of children born in their geographical area called a parish, all of them believed that anyone born, any infant, is qualified to be baptized upon um, just being born, the fact that they were born. And everyone in a geographical area belonged to the church that was sanctioned by, promoted by, affirmed by the civil ruler of the territory. So what, what belief you affirmed and what church you were in depended on who the ruler supported, protected, and 
that you were baptized into this group as an infant. So Anabaptists uh, broke completely with this paradigm, this way of thinking, very early, by 1525, 1527 at the latest. And they said that the church is the gathered congregate congregation of believers who have voluntarily, voluntarily entered into uh, faith in Christ as Savior and Lord, voluntarily done this. They said that the Bible requirements for baptism are a public confession. Public confession of sin, public confession of repentance. public confession of faith and not the fact that an infant had been born in this territory. The person must have trusted in Jesus for their sins and turned away from sin to qualify for baptism. And uh, so if you can think a little bit about that, you, you can understand why why this, this thing of delayed baptism developed. It's the need to just uh, check a little bit here and see, have these people who want to be baptized, uh, have they, do they actually express by word and life, faith, repentance, have they made confession? Now, in 1525, 30, 35, 40, in the 16th century, there was very little delay of baptism after confession. Very little. Uh, maybe half a day. Maybe till the next meeting. Um, and one of, I'm going to say one of the reasons for that was that you, you didn't, people did not um, request baptism unless they were ready to die. Okay? Does that make any sense? They had to be, they were aware this might cost you your life, and this is a serious matter, and, and they were serious about it. So that's just a side note. So Anabaptists broke completely with the normal way things had been done. They said that infants and young children are not accountable for sin until they are aware that they have sinned. They are not uh, responsible or guilty of uh, Adam's, Adam and Eve's original sin. They're not born lost. That's what Anabaptists said. So they didn't need infant baptism. Um, and they did, and maybe you can uh, see why they thought this based on what I've said so far. They did view baptism as, as the act of ceremony that incorporated a person into the life of the church. This made you a full 
I'm trying to find a different word, and it's not coming. Uh, this was the way that you were incorporated into the life of the church or became a member. And I'm cautious about these things while I'm talking because I'm very aware that in our day there are these trigger words. And membership is one of them. And, and um, baptism, delayed baptism is another trigger issue. And, and I'm, I'm not trying here this morning to do some thorough, exhaustive explanation of, of why Mennonites do everything they do. But I, I think the, these are the foundational ideas that led to some of the things that people today are very frustrated about and, and think that... Um, I've had conversations with people. Um, I was at Faith Builders too long and uh, talked to too many people and heard too many stories and, and uh, you know, tried to explain things so many times. I, I know these trigger things. So they, these are... These are issues we struggle with uh, to go on then. What is the purpose of the church? Uh, and I have a list here of purposes, and they are connected to the 16th century Anabaptist experience. So the first one I have is to evangelize. The purpose of the church is to evangelize. That is what they thought. Uh, they were very, very committed to this idea. Their view of missions was rooted in the verses I read, Matthew 28 and Matthew 16. Uh, the, the Great Commission to go teach, that's make disciples of, and and baptize, uh, which they may have thought literally meant water baptism. It also includes the idea of uh, immersing believers in the presence and teaching of Jesus, of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And God will be with you those verses say. In Mark 16, where I mentioned before, uh, go and proclaim the gospel and the ones who believe uh, should be baptized and they are the ones who are saved. This was their view of missions. And they viewed people around them as lost and they were distressed about that all these people going to hell. And they were very active. And so I'm going to mention here what is called the Martyrs' Synod of 1527, uh, which was a gathering of 60 uh, Anabaptists, I think mostly ordained, 
This is two years, two, two and a half years after the first baptism. These 60 people met in Augsburg, Germany, and they discussed these issues. How people become converted. How people become members of a holy, suffering church. How people should live in this kingdom and the relationship of this suffering kingdom to the rest of society. The role of civil authorities in relation to this kingdom. <clears throat> okay, uh, I don't know how often you have been in meetings with people who discuss these kind of issues and care a lot about the answers, and I promise you that these were not, um, these were not just whatever conversation over lunch. This, this was like serious, if I may use the term, dead serious, yes. And they really went at these things, and they concluded that the kingdom of God, the church, is established when those who are poor in spirit, you're not going to like all of this, when those who are poor in spirit who clutch at nothing, who share their goods in community, who refuse to accept the magistrate in the place of God, when these people covenant together, they are the church. And then they ordained or commissioned the people to go to different geographical areas of Europe to proclaim the gospel and establish churches. And the result of this meeting was the non-Anabaptists in Augsburg, civil and religious leaders, were distressed. They were highly distressed. All of these people with these wild ideas were in their city having this discussion. And civil leaders saw how many were there, and they were upset about the views they held, and the result was that most of these 60 people uh, ended up being martyred, those who attended this meeting. But that did not um, change that many people uh, heard these ideas and affirmed them and did missions based on that. I don't have time to go into that, but it was a movement. So the compelling vision for 16th century Anabaptist Mennonite sense of mission grew out of their unique view of the church as a believer's church that did not include everyone in society. Their view that it's composed only of those who practice voluntary radical discipleship. The radical view they had of the work of Christ for believers and unbelievers, and they rejected the sacramental view. That is, if you partake of the sacraments, then you're saved. They rejected that. They rejected the, um, the Protestant view that 
that if you believe the right things about Jesus dying on the cross, Jesus, God will say that you have the righteousness of Christ and you'll be saved. They rejected that and they said that the person cannot be righteous unless they believe in their heart and God does a work in their heart and makes them a saint. Because they have to be repent, believe, and be regenerated. And it's not just some idea in the head about something that God will do in heaven on your account. So that was part of their uh, compelling vision for missions. Uh, I'm going to comment on their methods of evangelism. It was pilgrims searching for relief from persecution, going about and talk, 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 talk. Martyrs preached to the crowds as they were being executed, and it moved people, and they're like, how can this person die that way? What are they believing that causes that? And they believe, too. Um, Non-ordained people read the Bible and evangelized the others. Small groups met in homes, occupational contacts. Uh, we know now that women were very, very active in their relationship with other women, and many people were one that way. Okay, the second purpose of the church to baptize adult believers. Um, I think it's fair to say that the Anabaptist view of baptism determined their view of the church, as I've described it. Um, it's for believers only, and that's uh, baptism incorporated people into the visible body of Christ. I'm just summarizing. I've already gone into that. The third purpose, to practice the Lord's Supper. Um, <clears throat> so back then, um, in the early days, I'm not trying to be critical here. I'm just saying this is how it was. Uh, Anabaptists, Mennonites, they had two primary ordinances. It was baptism and the Lord's Supper. There were other things that they cared about. Um, brotherly love and sharing of goods. And uh, within 10, 15 years, that became a, an important, this is what we must do, idea, along with baptism and the Lord's Supper. And there were others that kind of developed, too, in the 16th century. But I'm just saying that baptism and the Lord's Supper were primary in their mind. And they rejected all beliefs that said Christ is present in the bread and wine. They said he is not. And they're trying to get away from the Catholic and Lutheran and Reformed views. They said... Christ is present in believers. He lives in believers. So when believers gather together, Christ is there because he's in them. They said believers are the literal body of Christ. The visible community of believers presents Christ to the world. That's how people see Christ is through believers because he lives in them. 
expresses his life through them. They said that only those who demonstrate faith and repentance and commitment to this community of believers should participate in the Lord's Supper, and that's where you get close communion. We may not like it, I'm just saying, that's where it came from. Another purpose of the church, uh, disciple. Make disciples the idea of disciple people for growth. Disciple people, and you could change the word and say discipline people, but the idea was disciple people. And that's the idea of come close to people and admonish them and encourage them and instruct them. And if they are straying, admonish them more. And at some point, if they will not heed admonishment, there's excommunication. And this is the idea of discipling. So they rejected the Catholic view that there were two kinds of believers, uh, saints, um, two kinds of saints. There, they, according to Catholic idea, there, there were um, the people, extraordinary saints, who when they die, die, they go straight to heaven. And then there are the other less extraordinary saints who die and go to purgatory. And then they are purged of uh, whatever. And after a time, they may, will, uh, enter heaven. And then after those two groups of people, which are the same believers, then you have reprobates, and they are everybody else who's going to hell. So Anabaptists rejected these two groups, the extraordinary saints and the ordinary kind. Um, and they emphasized Matthew 18 as the paradigm for church life, discipling, instruction, and discipline as necessary. Uh, so virtually all Anabaptists that we know by name today uh, had experienced church discipline at the hands of Catholic and Protestant church authorities, and we know them precisely because they were considered heretics and were persecuted. And some of them, many of them, killed. Anabaptists said that physical violence and carnal force were not permitted as a means of discipline. So that's part of the way, part of the reason that they rejected killing people who disagreed. They said the only acceptable form of discipline is verbal admonition and correction. And if that failed, excommunication. I uh, supposed to be um, honest about it or transparent. Some Anabaptists in the 16th century and some since. Mennonites, 
have exercised discipline in a manner that you and I might consider harsh. That is true, too. And that's not good. It's not right. And, of course, the question is, how do you exercise discipline without it being harsh? And whether or not it's harsh might depend on uh, someone's view. Uh, I, I can't get into all that this morning. So another purpose of the church is to worship God. And uh, ba basic, the basic components of church community throughout history for Mennonites has been shared values, shared space, shared goals, and shared commitments. And all of this being anchored in Jesus, the foundation of the church. In my summary this morning, I think I'm doing a little better with the time than I have sometimes. Anabaptists viewed the believer's church as the present kingdom of God on earth. The place on earth where God's will is done. They believe the church cooperates with God in establishing righteousness and justice on the earth, especially among believers. without using carnal force. Matthew 18 was their method of Christian education. They had a high view of discipling one another. Each believer had this responsibility. This was not primarily the role of the ordained. The Anabaptist view of Discipling and discipline is rooted in their view of the body, which their view was that the body agrees together on how Christians should live, and that together the body decides how to respond to situations in which people do not fulfill their commitments. And the idea that the body of the church has authority over its members and that the church is responsible to define how Christianity should be lived in our day in this world should be lived and expressed and, and the idea that the purpose of the church extends beyond the function of worship few more comments. An attempt was made to move away from the hierarchical view, that is, that the ordained are the church. Uh, in early Anabaptism, the body, congregation, shared directly in, deci in decisions related to discipline. Uh, the bishop, head pastor, generally led the body to make a decision and then carried out the common decision of the body. But uh, as in many things, as time passed, 
for some groups that changed and uh, the decision making about the discipline became primarily the role of the ordained, which removed the participation of the body, uh, which often, usually, uh, leads to people feeling like uh, they have no voice. And so whatever is happening in discipline or in whatever else in church life, they feel like they really aren't part of it. And, of course, if, if what is happening is, is uh, if, if it is happening uh, in the midst of harshness, it uh, contributes to distress, reaction. So, uh, there are many lessons to learn in relation to history and things that have happened and what people have believed and how we carried it out. And uh, uh, I guess for me, um, when, when, I'm, when I think about responsibilities to a church and uh, what is the situation and what, what, uh, what needs attention? I, I'll admit that there are these thousand kinds of things that go through my head, which maybe isn't good, but I'm trying to think through uh, these historical events and, and what has been and decisions made and why they were made and how they were made and the attitudes that they were done in. And, uh, of course, none of us are perfect in these things, but this, this, this what I've presented, I believe, is the, the Anabaptist understanding of church and how, how they saw church functioning. And, of course, th their views developed in... Um, I think the word would be reaction to other options and their reasons why they reacted the way they did and made the decisions they made. And uh, we certainly need wisdom in our day together, wisdom together to do well with church. May the Lord bless you.